I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Halloween is nearly upon us. So in today's episode of Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter, we're exploring the darker side of growing. We're digging into an issue that's haunting our houseplants. Pete, a plant pathologist, is helping to identify honey fungus, a common garden organism that sometimes turns into a plant assassin. And we're hearing how one man is striving to keep imperiled plants alive. But first, there's a problematic substance lurking in many houseplant pots across the UK. Peat. Peatland habitats are vitally important in the fight against climate change. They hold more carbon than all the world's forests combined. And they also help keep our drinking water clean, reduce flood risk and provide habitats for some incredible plants and animals. But our peatlands are under threat. Peat is widely used in gardening as it's a big component of growing media such as potting compost. And as a result, at least 80% of our peat bogs here in the UK have been damaged or destroyed. To make matters worse, like coal or oil, peat is effectively a finite resource, as it forms at the rate of just one millimetre annually. And perhaps to the horror of houseplant lovers, the vast majority of these indoor plants are grown in peat. But never fear, RHS editor Gareth Richards has tracked down a sustainable houseplant hero, Harriet Thompson of Harriet's Plants. Her Litchfield-based company grows and sells a range of peat-free plants. I have never and will never use peat within my business. I am the only peat-free grower that I'm aware of within the UK that grows houseplants. So my compost is a mix of so sustainable um, wood fibre, sustainable bark and sustainable coir. Harriet, can you just tell us about these peat-free materials? So you mentioned coir and wood fibre. What are they and why do they work in potting mixes? Wood fibre is from trees and it acts in my compost as a free draining material. As much as it absorbs water to help my plants be watered correctly, it also adds a free drainage material within the potting mixture. And then the coir is a byproduct from the coconut industry. So they're imported from Sri Lanka. So coconut trees grow so quickly that it is a wholly sustainable material. The coconut husks 
are taken away from the coconut so the coconuts actually stay in Sri Lanka and it's just the husks that come over yeah and then that is added into the compost for drainage and also to hold on to moisture basically Um, and also that helps with when I'm feeding the coir holds on to my feed a little bit better than the wood fibre does. Great. And does that cost a lot of money? Because peat-free alternatives have a reputation for being quite expensive. So how do you get around that? I mean, yes, it's expensive, but I think people that want eco-friendly products and are prepared to invest in a product that isn't harming the environment, I think people are prepared to pay a little bit more for that. And I'm very grateful that that's the case. But I would love, 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 love to see peat-free products reduce in price slightly um, just to kind of really be a contender to peat-grown houseplants. Yeah. The government's talking about banning peat in the future for horticulture and the RHS. We don't sell any peat anymore in our plant centres and all the plants are going to be peat free by 2025. So I'm kind of I'm hopeful that things are really changing in that regard. So what got you started? How did this all come about? So I've been growing commercially for three years now. And before I grew in the in my mum's back garden. <laughs> OK, little backstory, actually. I went travelling when I first came out of school, decided then I wanted to come home and just I wanted to be connected with nature. So I decided to study plant science at the Eden Project. And then from there, because I was into houseplants, and I always have been into houseplants, but I just noticed what that was doing to the environment. And I saw that opportunity to make this movement happen, I guess. Yeah. And so when you look at plants in like the DIY stores, for example, yeah. and they're th- these great big, enormous, lush things that are yeah. have evidently... They look bit, glorious. They look glorious, <laughs> but actually yeah. they are probably full of uh, insecticides. They're full of artificial fertilisers. They've been grown in peat. Yeah. They have plastic pots, all of which is kind of ideal for for that kind of production. But actually when you grow things yourself my plants don't look like that as as much as I wish they would so how do you kind of change people's expectations of what a house plant's going to look like? I struggled with this actually to start with because I think when I first started growing I imagined growing plants that looked like the plants that were in these DIY stores and don't get me wrong it's totally achievable however they are pumped with chemicals that aren't good for the planet, you know, that go into waterways and affect wildlife. For example, you know, my plants aren't as big currently anyway, because I haven't had the years behind me to be able to grow really big, big plants. Even like artificial lighting, like I like to grow with the seasons. I like to see the plants change in growth in terms of like, you know, when the light dims slightly, they don't grow as fast. But that's growing with the, vi- mm. with the environment rather than putting more emissions into this great environment that we have. And that for me is a lot more important than growing a really big luscious plant that's going to sell for £15. Yeah, I think it's a really valuable point because as time goes on and we all become a bit more aware of environmental issues, you see things like the wonky box in the supermarket. People aren't kind of expecting so much perfection because actually they realise what that perfection represents is actually something that's really not sustainable. We've wholeheartedly been taught to expect perfection and unfortunately that comes at a cost to our environment. So when people have these peat-free houseplants, is the care a bit different for them? Do you have to look after them differently? 
It is a bit different. And because I also grow in coir pots as well, you do. So coir pots are porous, plastic pots aren't. So when you water a coir pot, water comes out the side sometimes. So obviously you need a drainage tray, which you should have with a plastic pot anyway. But I like to advise that we do bottom watering rather than top watering, just because it means that the roots get as much water as they need rather than, you know, you get into a habit sometimes of just watering and then that's it. But actually you really need to feel the weight of the plant and get to know. And I like to teach the people that are, you know, on my social media and stuff to really look after that plant and get to know what that plant's individual needs are. Yeah. That's a real kind of pro tip, isn't it? You don't decide if something needs watering with your eyes. You lift the pot, you poke your finger in and... Totally. So how do you see the houseplant market evolving in future? Yeah, I think people will be awakened to what the damaging effects of growing plants is um, or does to the environment. But I'm just hoping that they, yeah, you know, choose sustainably. And that means that sustainably grown plants will get cheaper you have some quite clever ways of kind of getting around that though, don't you? Because sometimes you sell smaller plants. I've heard of you selling cuttings as well, like single leaves of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I will never sell single leaves things unless they're rooted. Um, I think that's quite important because a lot of people buy leaves and get them in the post and have no idea what to do with them. And I've been there too, like pre-growing, I would have no, if someone sent me a leaf, I'd be like, why on earth has someone sent me a leaf? (laughs) (laughs) So so if we cast you off to a desert island and told you you could only take one plant, what plant would you take? I would probably take, now have I got prime conditions for this plant? Yeah, you can give it whatever conditions you want. But it's got to be it's uh, got to be a house plant in a pot. I'm quite basic, so I am probably gonna either go with an asparagus fern. Oh no. No, I want a Monstera Danzonii, please. <laughs> so it's a Swiss cheese vine because I really love trailing mm. and vining plants. I really, really love them. And they're easy to care for too. You know the, uh, the traditional cheese plant. Yep. Uh, it's a smaller leafed vining version of that so yeah they're gorgeous they really are and they grow you know you can grow them across curtain poles and around your mirrors and they're just really delicate I really like them great they sound amazing oh Harriet thank you so much I feel like I've learned a lot and I've really got the enthusiasm for peat-free houseplants so I, I really wish you all the best for 2022 thank you so much for having me on the podcast Harriet Thompson happily you can buy peat-free houseplant compost in many good garden centres If you can't find it, look for a peat-free compost based on coir or coconut fibre instead. This doesn't contain the green waste that can encourage scarred flies that are a bit of a nuisance in a houseplant. The thing to remember with peat-free potting composts is that they can dry out on the surface while still remaining wet below. So check down in the lower parts of the pot before you water until you get your eye in because it's easy to overwater. If you've ever spotted clumps of honey-coloured toadstools alongside sickly-looking woody plants, you might want to pay particular attention to my next guest. It's the job of RHS plant pathologist Jassy Draculich to research one very prolific type of fungus that plagues gardeners by attacking and killing the roots of plants. It sometimes appears above ground on infected stumps in autumn, but Jassy's here to help. I focus my research on honey fungus, which is a fungus which rots the roots of plants, particularly trees and shrubs, and it has an enormous host range of hundreds and hundreds of different plants that it can affect. 
Honey fungus root rot is the number one disease that we diagnose through the members' diagnostic service, and it has been the number one every year since we've been keeping records since 1996. So, yeah, we receive hundreds of different records of this throughout the year. We either receive the records when people find a tree has died, so the roots are rotted and the tree has died back above the ground, and we send in either just photos of the whole thing or pieces of the dead root underneath, or... During the autumn time, the fungus sometimes will produce a flush of mushrooms. So we get a lot of photographs of these mushrooms coming up in people's gardens that we then identify and tell them, unfortunately, it's honey fungus. Well, it gets the name honey fungus from the colour of the mushrooms it produces, which are a kind of honey, beigey, brown colour. And there's actually different species, so we call it honey fungus, but there's a few different species that exist in gardens. Three main ones are Armillaria melia, which is what we call an actual pathogen that can affect healthy plants and kill them. Armillaria gallica is just opportunistic. So unless a plant is already stressed out, it's not going to attack and hurt that plant, but it will pick off the weakened ones. And then Armillaria osteoi is another pathogen, but it's very rare that we find it. And if you look at the mushrooms, you can tell the difference between the different species. And the one that is the weak one, Armillaria gallica, these honey-coloured mushrooms, they become bulbous at the base, so they get fatter the closer towards the ground they get. One of the reasons why it's such a a hot topic that people want to ask us questions about is that we don't have many tools at the moment to manage disease other than trying in vain to dig it out as best we can. So what we've been trying to do is find other ways that gardeners can tackle this or that they can find a way to justify going to the extreme measures to try and get rid of it, which is firstly... um, looking at case-by-case scenarios of whether someone has a melia infection with this aggressive pathogen or a weak Gallica infection. And if we can diagnose to species level, then they are either justified to take extreme action and try and get rid of it, or with Gallica, potentially to try and live with that in their soil. And I'm doing some experiments to see whether if actually having Gallica around might help exclude melia from being able to get in. And if anything, whilst I wouldn't say put it in your garden if you've already got it maybe work with it live with it and see if that can actually help you prevent worse disease outbreaks from the other species in the future unfortunately because honey fungus is such a big problem and gardeners often think fungus and they think honey fungus they think it's a problem but that's just one fungus or you know three closely related fungi out of the millions of fungi that exist in the world of which the vast majority are incredibly helpful and indispensable in fact and yeah i'd love for people to have a greater appreciation for fungi and to realize that they are helping they're doing so much good for the garden and we are only just really beginning as scientists to understand the real depth of how beneficial they are. So some ways that they are useful is that they will be rotting down dead material, and these are really common in the garden, either degrading wood and releasing all the the nutrients from that cellulose and lignin that nothing else can eat, and releasing that so that the plants can use that themselves, or other uh, invertebrates, pollinators, other, other bacteria can all thrive on what it creates by recycling those nutrients. And then you also have the mycorrhizal fungi, which associate with the roots of plants and help them to uptake more water and make nutrients available to those plants that would otherwise be there in the, in the soil, but just not in a form that the plants could absorb. In actual fact, plants colonise land only through an association with fungi, because when they came out of the water, they didn't have any roots. So yeah, fungi and plants, they really do go hand in hand. You can't really separate them and have them survive. 
Honey fungus is very widespread. I have a black currant plant in my garden at the moment that's infected with honey fungus. I'm going to dig it out and throw it on the bonfire soon. It's important to act quickly because bootlaces spread through the soil and infect nearby plants. So the best thing to do is to remove infected plants as soon as you see them. When you come to replant, RHS research suggests that if you leave it uh, five months or more, the bootlaces and infective material will decline and you can replant, ideally using a less susceptible plant that's available on our website. Now we move on to someone with a rather unusual job title. My name is Will Rogers and I'm a research conservation professional at the State Botanical Garden at the University of Georgia. This means Will is responsible for looking after rare and imperiled plants, something he moved into after studying psychology. And he's got a special technique that he spent years practising to keep these plants alive. Yes, I sing to my plants. I usually sing Motown, so it's a good time. I make sure no one's around (laughs) before I sing, but yeah, I have a good time with the plants. You know, they perk up a little bit. Especially when I go into Barry White mode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, Barry White. Thought everyone had forgotten him. We did try and get him to give us a rendition. I don't know if I've even warmed up this morning. What time is it there in the UK? Two o'clock. It is 9.30 here in the USA. And so I'm a little not warmed up. (laughs) Next interview, I'll give you a little sample. (laughs) We'll be holding him to that one. So back to these imperiled plants. Will's been looking after them for the past few years, a role that threw him straight into the deep end. My very first day on the job, I had to travel to the U.S. state of Tennessee. So it's about a three and a half, four hour drive north. And I had to hike up a mountain. I should say before this, I call myself a lab rat. So in my former position, I was doing pretty much 100% lab work. So I didn't get into the field very often. And when I did go, it was like very simple, very easy, like a a five minute hike to get to a site. So I met at a boat dock on a back road in Tennessee. And so from there, we had to hike four hours up this mountain to get to this really, really rare species of Pityopsis, Pityopsis ruthii. And it's like you get to that site and it's so incredible. It, I call it gnome land because it just, there was specialized moss everywhere and it just looked incredible. So that species was uh, my first one in, in this job. And it just, I called it difficult because it just was a very difficult plant to get to. And I was exhausted, but I, I loved every minute of it. So I was hired to work on a a National Science Foundation grant studying basically the reasons for rarity, where we were examining a commonly occurring species versus a rare or endemic species. And so a common species was something that grew in lots of different places. So multiple states here in the United States, different types of habitat, roadside ditches, forest power lines. So the common species could be found in tons of different places. And the rare species would only be found in very specific habitats, sort of like sandstone outcrops, boggy type habitats. And we wanted to look at why this common conjure, closely related species to the rare one, was growing in um, these specialized habitats. And the other one 
the common one would grow in all these widespread and diverse type habitats. And so we were doing uh, growth chamber experiments. So we would take the common species and the rare species, germinate them and grow them side by side and basically stress them out in these growth chambers with the light hypothesis that the rare species wouldn't do well under like light stressors or temperature stressors or water stressors, and that the common species would have more plasticity in um, dealing with the changes in this growing uh, environment. So why do they grow in these habitats that are so difficult and specialized. So there are a few running theories and some uh, have been sort of proven. Sometimes the plants in question are slow growing. And so if they grew in very nice habitats, they just get outgrown. So all the weeds around them, the other plants around them grow taller faster and they get shaded out. And so they can't survive or compete against these other faster growing species. It's a little bit like being a football player that's good but not fantastic. And so if you go to a school and play football where everybody is brilliant, you're not going to shine. But if you can find a spot where you're like top dog and you're the brilliant one, then you get to shine. So I, I like that analogy. It's like a football player. Oh, so... A psychological analysis of a rare plant. That's an interesting question. So I would say Zyrus, and I should say Zyrus, so they have these little cone heads, and they look like pine cones, but they're very, very tiny, about the size of a raisin. And apparently there are up to 5,000 seeds in that one little seed head. So you would think that if it's 5,000 seeds, it would have no problem being, you know, widespread and healthy, having healthy populations. But that one, those seeds are so tiny that they kind of maybe get buried too deep. So I would say maybe Zyrus is a little shallow, <laughs> emotionally speaking. Some of the other ones, um, the Pityopsis that I was mentioning, uh, the description for its habitat is a soil field rock crevice. And so you get there to that site in Tennessee and truly along the rivers there, uh, two river systems there, the plants are growing in these cracks. The cracks are mostly about the size of a pencil and it does have like uh, just a bit of soil packed into those cracks and that's where you find those plants. And so they're tough, resilient. They're resilient because they, they deal with a lot of flooding and shearing uh, just from the water force flowing over them, so they're, they're tough and resilient. So the hidden challenges of studying rare plants. It can be, with the seeds trying to get them to germinate, it could be anything from a deep dormancy. So the seeds basically go into this state where they're just done. They're like frozen in time, and you have to figure out what they need to break that dormancy. And sometimes that can be heat. You have to mimic a fire passing through. Sometimes it's like a very saturated condition, so you have to stratify them for a very, very long time in uh, cold, moist sand. The coolest thing I think I've seen is that people can use liquid smoke to mimic fire. And so the chemicals in that 
compound that we use to flavor our foods can trick the seed into thinking it's been through a fire. Apparently I haven't, I've heard grad students use this before and have some success with it. So that's something I would like to try out in the future. So why is this work important? So my former career, the last 10 years of it, I worked exclusively with this coniferous plant species, Saracenia. And so there's a site in Alabama, you're driving down the, a country road, and it's almost like you'll miss it if you don't know what you're looking for. But if you go to that site and uh, go walk out into the field, you see all these beautiful carnivorous plants and they look it looks like you're walking on Mars or something the plants are just bizarre looking go back to you driving down that country road you don't know they're there if they disappear due to usually human activity it's like you never knew they were there so if we turn that field into something a shopping center or whatnot then we've missed out on an opportunity to teach generations about that species before they even got to kind of meet it. And so a lot of these species that are imperiled are important for diversity. I mean, they were here long before us. So, I mean, it's important for people like us to kind of bring to the forefront their existence and why they're important and the need for diversity, things like that, I would say. Will Rogers. RHS gardens are full of rare and unusual plants. Gardens like Wisley swap and exchange with other similar gardens so they can get hold of all sorts of things that are very rare in trade and often cannot be bought. One of the things that is rare and can be bought, and as I'm going to have a look at this afternoon because it's high time to see it, is the raisin tree. Now, the raisin tree doesn't actually produce raisins. Raisins come from grapes, as everyone knows. But um, this tree, technically called Havenia dulcis, has a very unusual kind of fruit. What happens is, it produces berries, or little fruits, all right, but they're insignificant. The actual raisin is a sweet stalk, and you pick the stalk off the tree, and you taste it, and it tastes just like raisins. There's some doubt about whether you should eat large quantities of them, but tasting one or two won't do any harm. Well, that takes us to the end of this week's show. Before I go today, I just wanted to leave you with a job to be thinking about this week. Planting broad beans. In sheltered, well-drained soils, you can plant hardy broad beans like aquadulci, and they will grow all winter and give a nice early crop next year. Don't worry if you haven't got space or your garden is too wet or cold. Beans sown in pots in February indoors will soon catch up but it's nice to save time in the spring and get started now. For more on anything we covered today, from preventing honey fungus to avoiding peat, you can visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. All that's left to say is happy Halloween and goodbye from me, Guy Booarter. <laughs> Never knew I was such a fun fellow. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.